Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with David Shane, founder of OIF Ventures, in person in the studio. In 2000, David sold his first company, Comtech Communications for an enterprise value of over a billion dollars, which is arguably Australia's first tech unicorn. Now he runs OIF Ventures, a venture fund that looks to empower early stage founders and really give them the tools they need to succeed. And we're going to learn from his experiences today around building a tech unicorn, what he looks for when it comes to investing in other startups, and all the other key learnings that went into his book, The Dumbest Guy at the Table, How I Founded Australia's First Unicorn. Please welcome to the podcast, David Shane. The first question that we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? So my first job was actually, I'm a chartered accountant by profession, and uh, my first job was in, in a chartered firm in South Africa, I worked for Pricewaterhouse. Uh, I think I got that job in about 1982. And uh, to be honest, it was unbelievably easy to get a job in an accounting firm in those days. I used to say if you if you showed up drunk, they would still give you a job. There was such a staff shortage of accountants in those days. Um, I did go sober for the interview and I did get a job. But it was uh, turned out to be a, a really lucky um, experience for me because I um, I was in the audit section, my first audit was of a, a company called SA Breweries. They were the biggest brewery in South Africa, now a global uh, a global uh, uh, brewery. And uh, I had to audit fixed assets for six weeks. And uh, it, it was my numbing. <laughs> I remember I had to hire an engineer and uh, to, to validate that assets that existed in the fixed asset register actually physically existed in the in the factory and then find some assets in the factory and ensure that they were in the um, in the fixed asset register and I remember hiring an engineer for the day and I th- 
Yeah, I said, I'm looking for a U3 pump and uh, pointed to something in the ceiling, ticked it off. And I came up and said, how the bloody hell do I know if that's a U3 pump or a vacuum cleaner? I'd have no idea. And I was just happily ticking everything off. And after six weeks, I said to my boss, there's no way I'm going to last three years doing, doing this. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I, um, I want to do something where I'm doing something from A to Z. And, and uh, they put me in the small business division. And I'm going back a hell of a long time because, as I say, early 80s. Uh, in those days, people didn't have you know, computers on their desktop. They didn't have Maya or Zero running their business. Um, I was lucky enough um, to have a computer. But we used to call, um, in those days, we used to, in the small business division, we used to call it a shoebox audit because you'd literally get bank, uh, uh, bank deposit slips and check stubs and you'd write, write up the income statement and balance sheet um, from those source documents. And uh, I was really lucky. One of my clients asked me to uh, give them a draft copy of the income statement balance sheet for a board meeting. I said to the guy, I still remember his name was Dave Brown. I said, how many copies do you want? He said, six. And I did it at home on my computer and printed out six, six copies and he absolutely loved it. I also included it in my working papers for the partner at Pricewaterhouse. And he said, where do you do this? I said, I did it at home. And uh, I said to him, I said, his name was Andrew Spalding, the partner at Pricewaterhouse. I said, Andrew, I said, if I can sell this to Dave Brown at Seifritz, can I, can I start my own microcomputer division within the small business division? And I think thinking, probably thinking that I was an auditor, that I'd never be able to sell anything. He said, yeah, sure, you can. And I did. I went to Dave Brown, sold him the solution, and... Uh, and my partner was true to his word. He let me run the micro, uh, the, the, you know, the PC division within the small business division, and that's how I got my my love for computers. And uh, yeah, which happened from that first job. So, long answer to to a easy question. So, so now you run a venture firm, OIF Ventures. Yep. Before that, you ran Comtech Communications, yep. which you found, co-founded. Yep. And you sold that for. Valuation of over a billion dollars. And when did you start Comtech? Was that your first business? And what brought you here to Australia? So I, uh, I came to Australia in 1987, in 1986, uh, November 86. And as soon as I finished to get your accounting degree in South Africa, you had to work for three years at a chartered firm. So pretty much almost to the day when I'd done my three years, uh, I emigrated. My wife, um, was Australian. She actually was born in South Africa, but she emigrated to Australia when she was 12. I met her and um, so came back, uh, came, came with her and a young, a young son in 1986. And I started my company in 1987. And, uh, and you know, once again, as I said, I had a, a really lucky break at, um, at Pricewaterhouse. You know, I had a boss who backed me and uh, I had a really lucky break in Australia. I took a job with a a computer company, I thought I'd hit the jackpot. I'd gone from an article clock at Pricewaterhouse to national sales manager of this software distribution company. And, uh, and uh, boy, did I learn a lot from, from that company. So I was really lucky I had a bad job. It was, um, I was paid badly. I had absolutely no job satisfaction and I had absolutely no say in what I did. It was almost like my boss said, you know, you leave your brain at the front door and pick it up on the way, on, on the way home. And, you, know, you know, I'm paid to think and you're paid to do. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had a job where it feels like someone's literally pushing you out the, out the door to go to work, and it's, it's horrible. You know, when I worked at Pricewaterhouse, it wasn't my own company. I absolutely loved my job. You know, when my wife used to say to me, when I was running my company, you work so hard, that's when you went, when you met me. I, I I worked really hard, which was at Price Waterhouse because I loved doing what I did. And uh, nine months later, I, I decided to start my own company. I was earning two thousand dollars a month, and I felt the opportunity cost was that low. If I ever wanted to start a company, this was the time to give it a go. And uh, yeah, I, I I would say you know a lot of people say you you know, you're a true entrepreneur. I think I was really lucky. If I, a true entrepreneur, someone who leaves a job that was paying you know, a huge salary, um, I was lucky enough to be, you know, that, that opportunity cost was really low. I actually lived with my in-laws 
So I knew that my wife and my kid, we always had a roof over our head. Um, we, you know, there was always going to be food on the table. And uh, I was offered a job at $4,000 a month. And uh, I said to the guy who offered me a job, I said, Gary, I've always wanted to try something on my own. I said, if it doesn't work, I won't be too proud to come back and see you. And hopefully you won't be too proud to have me. And luckily, I never had to go back for that job. But it did give me the confidence to know that if it didn't work out, I felt there was a safety net. Mm. So it was 1987 yes. that you started Comtech. Correct. And uh, what did people say when you were going to start your own company back then? Because entrepreneurship now, it's like the new cool. Was It, it was not that cool back then, right? So Tech wasn't that cool, right? So my mother-in-law looked at me and she literally said, you go get yourself a job like any normal South African. <laughs> and... Uh, by the way, two years later, she said to me, why didn't you give me any shares? <laughs> True story. And, but, but a lot of people, uh, yeah, I remember my brother-in-law saying to me, anyone who can't run their business on the back of a matchbox shouldn't be running a business. Both my brothers who actually joined the business later on thought I was crazy. And uh, the two things that gave me, well, I'd say three my wife was unbelievably supportive when I made the decision to go on my own. My dad, who still lived in South Africa, always used to say, rather earn 50 cents for yourself than a dollar from somebody else. Great, really gave me a lot of encouragement. And, uh, and honestly, it was some of that, those negative um, you know, sentiments towards me going on my own that actually gave me the confidence to, I'm going to, I'm going to prove everything wrong. And... Uh, Everyone in the room today is too young, but maybe if you get onto YouTube, there was an amazing ad campaign. It was for a beer called Swan Lager. And the whole campaign was, they said you'd never make it. And one was about Greg Norman. They said you'd never make it as a golf fan. They said you finally came through. And that, that song used to ring in my ear every single day. You know, there was always, you know, as with you know, any founders, just with one of our founders today, and I said, this cohort of founders that, you know, have been running businesses, say, from 2015 to today, are going to be the most unbelievable leaders. The guys that come through, are, you know, they've gone through a pandemic. They've gone through, in my, in my opinion, probably arguably the, the absolute toughest time to attract, engage, and retain staff. And now they've gone through, you know, going through a, a, a situation where last year you were unbelievably rewarded for growth, and this year you punished for growth. And that doesn't mean... Yeah, you know, that means if you're a Disney, if you're an Atlassian, or if you're a yeah, you know, if you're a normal startup, it's all of a sudden yeah, you, know, you actually have to make a buck too. So I I, I think yeah, the people telling me I couldn't do it was actually more of a of a boost for me than a than a downer. It was just I was going to prove them all wrong, and I'm and I'm and I'm proud that I did. So, what was the initial hypothesis for Comtech Communications? What was the problem you were trying to solve? What what, what did the company do? So what, so what, what, what we did was, as I said, I got into computers, the PC industry, really, really early. And in those days, you may just have had an EA doing word processing uh, on, a, on a standalone computer, or you may have had an accountant doing a spreadsheet to do the budgeting, the forecasting, but nobody had shared computers in those days. And I sort of started seeing when I was putting people on, on computer, and as I say, it was putting putting an accounting system into a small business, that people were saying, Geez, would it be possible if I could also share a print or if I could do, you know, get access to the information? And uh, so this was now 1987, and PCs were becoming more pervasive in the workplace, and not on every desktop yet, not in every home. But I saw this trend in local area networking happen, happening where you could link computers. And so the thesis was to to get into an industry where, um, where you'd be able to provide networking and communication services to, to organizations. Got you. And uh, you ran that company for 15 years before you sold it. Uh, 14. I, 14. I, I sold it in, two, in 2000, so that was 13, and I, I actually left a year later. Got you. And what did you get annual revenues to? Uh, by the time we finished, we were at seven hundred million dollars of revenue, wow. and uh, and what I used to always pride myself on is that we we were profitable since inception, 
and very different to a founder today who may be developing their own product and investing in R&D invest. We, I always say, I ride on the coattails of successful companies. So a different kind of a business model. But I, I, I would always stand up every time I would present to our staff or to customers. So we've been profitable since inception. We have no external debt. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was, for me, was always a, a key performance indicator. You raised no VC? No, we had no venture capital, but I did bring in a, uh, a, a outside shareholder in 1992. I brought in Macquarie Bank. And, uh, yeah, I may say I, I brought in Michael Trail, who happened to work for Macquarie Bank. There were about 10 companies that wanted to invest in our company. And uh, I said to the corporate advisor who was advising me, um, I really, um, I want to work with Michael Trail, who happened to work for Macquarie Bank. If he was with Deutsche Bank, I would have worked with Deutsche Bank. And the reason for that was, um, as I said to the corporate advisor, I said, Jeff, if I, if I have to go out for dinner with Mike and his wife, it's not because I have to, it's because I want to. And uh, I'm really proud to say that 30 years later, um, I was on a... Um, was actually for a book launch. I did it together with Ian Chappell, who was the former captain of Australia. I met Ian in South Africa when I was six years old, and we're still good friends today. And um, and Mike Trail actually interviewed both Ian and I. The three of us sat on our board. And, and I'm telling you this because I really believe what was critical to, to me was that I worked with people that I wanted to work with, who we shared the same values, we were culturally aligned, yeah, Mike owes me nothing, I owe him nothing, and 30 years later we're still mates for the very reason that we, you know, as I say, we took, we took his capital. And I will say that it wasn't venture capital. What we did was we paid ourselves mates, right? So myself, my brothers, my two business partners were technical guys. We literally paid ourselves. Yes, it was almost sweat equity for the first six or seven years. At that stage, I had two kids. I wanted to have something to show yeah. For, for the hard work that we had put in. And uh, Macquarie Bank put in $10 million into the business at the time. And it literally went in and we declared it as a fully frank dividend. Um, yeah, as I said, we never had any debt. We, we, we were profitable since inception. And it allowed us as shareholders to be able to say, yeah, whatever happens, we've, 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 uh, we've, able to show some benefit, you know, financial reward for the for the hard work that we've put in over the last over the last five years. Yeah. So you took money off the table. Yeah. And then I'm curious, because that's that's pretty impressive growth. First company, 15 years, 700 million in annual revenue, profitable since day one. Um, what do you think the key ingredient to success was for that business? Look, I'd say timing is always Critical in any in any business, you know, and uh, but um, I think probably the smartest thing I recognised when I was twenty six was I said I'm an accountant by profession, and uh, yeah, I always say if you if you think about any organisation, there's three key three groups of people that are critical. You have salespeople, you have admin people, and you have technical people. And when I say technical people, I'm not talking about a software developer or an engineer. Technical person. Or I am talking about them, but not restricted to that. You could also be talking about a chef in a kitchen as the technical person, or a designer in a fashion industry would be your technical person. So one thing I recognized was that I was never, ever going to be technical. I uh, I always say if I change a plug at home, my wife takes the family outside in case they blow the the house apart. So I, I knew that I would never ever be able to do the technical side. I knew if I had to do the books, I could, but I didn't really want to do that. What I wanted to do was focus on sales and marketing. And uh, so at, at, as a young founder of 26, I started the company on my own in June 87. The first person I hired was in, still remember, was on January the 4th, 1988, was a guy, Nathan, Nathan, Nathan Schur, same initials, and, uh, and uh, Nathan... Uh, was an amazing technical guy. So, uh, and the, th- the third person I hired was actually, unfortunately, my friend Dan Jarzen, who I dedicated the book to, who unfortunately succumbed to mental illness. He took the job um, as my admin, as an admin guy. And uh, I think after about a month, 
his wife said to him, you go get yourself a normal job because it was mates' rates and whatever. And my brother John joined to run the admin side of the business. So I think the smartest thing I really realized is that no one person can do everything. And, uh, and that I would, my advice to any founder is, is to, to know what you're never, ever going to be able to do, what you may be able to do but don't want to do, and, and give yourself the opportunity to, to really focus on what you think you can excel at. And once you let those people, yeah, you know, we had core values in our company, which was we, we were absolutely uncompromising on customer and staff satisfaction. So if you were running the tech side, those were absolutely two unbreakable, um, unbreakable um, values that, you know, whether you worked in, our, in the tech team, in the admin team, in our Perth office, in our Melbourne office, yeah, we, we, you know, we were famous for, that's what our brand was, customer and staff satisfaction. And, uh, but then I empowered Nathan and then Darren, who was the second tech guy to join, to, to run the tech, the tech team the way they wanted to do it because they, you know, if I had to tell them how to run it, then I've got the wrong people. And I know a lot of founders grapple with, you know, I always say to, to grow, you have to let go. And yeah, for me, it was absolutely a, a, a relief and a release to be able to say, thank God, I don't have to worry about that part of the company. It's, been, it's far better managed by Nathan and Darren than what it would have been done by myself. Mm. So you wrote a book last year, you published it, yep. called The Dumbest Guy at the Table, How I Founded Australia's First Unicorn. What compelled you to write the book? It's a long story, and I'll, I'll, I'll make a long story short and say my wife and I went to a health retreat. There was nothing to do in the afternoon. They said, just do something that you would never do. And uh, I decided I was going to write a book. And I was, I'm embarrassed to say, but proud to say, I've been using the same slide presentation for the last 35 years. And it's all about people. It's all about customers. It's all about staff. It's all about business partners and, and company culture. And uh, I always say to keep it current, I go to the back page of a newspaper, uh, not the business section, um, but the back page, because you always find something on the sporting page to, to keep it current. And uh, as an example, I'm just watching um, uh, on Netflix, there's a show called All or Nothing, and there's, a, there's a, a, a series on Arsenal, and they've got a new young coach, Mikhail Oteda. And uh, you know, if you watch that, that show and you see he made some unbelievably tough decisions last year, he got rid of his captain. He got rid of, you know, he was the best, um, the best player in the team, scored the most goals, and, uh, and, and, but he didn't share the values of the organization. He fired the guy, and last year was a bit of a, that win matches, lose some matches, and just, but this year, where's Arsenal coming? They're top of the ladder if you look at the English Premier League. So I really believe that culture is absolutely critical in small companies, in big companies, in sporting teams. So I wrote this book, but that was in 2019, came back and then reality set, sets in and thinks, who the hell would want to buy a book of some has been when there's been like such unbelievable success in Australia with companies like Canva, Atlassian, Afterpay, put it in my top drawer and never did anything uh, with the book until a friend of mine who um, was a, a really good athlete got knocked off his bicycle uh, training for a triathlon and became a paraplegic, did some unbelievable things after that accident, uh, swam the English Channel, first paraplegic, first paraplegic to complete the Hawaiian Ironman. I've been to watch the Hawaiian Ironman, it's bloody hard. It's like 40, 42 degrees heat and uh, that on its own is amazing, by the way. But 27 years after John was... Um, um, confined to a wheelchair, he somehow miraculously taught himself to walk and uh, doesn't walk like us, but he's, it's been life-changing for him. If he needs to go to the bathroom, he doesn't have to get into a wheelchair. And uh, so he's an amazing guy and he's written a book called Change, how he had to change his life from being an able-bodied athlete to a special needs athlete. And, uh, and I loved the book and he had a lot of diagrams in his book. And because my book was based on a PowerPoint presentation, I said, you're not going to believe it, Johnny. I've, got to, I've done this book, but I've done nothing with it. And he said, Dave, you've got to promise me you're going to speak to the lady who helped me edit my book, a lady, Diana Hill, and, uh, and you're going to do something with that book. And it's hard to argue with John, and I did that. And Diana actually said to me, you have to um, 
dedicate your book to somebody without even thinking. Um, didn't dedicate the book to the wonderful support that I had from my, my wife, Colleen, which I did. I dedicated it to a good friend of mine called Dan Jarzen, who worked in our company. He was our CFO for about 10 years. And uh, Dan always just said to me, Dave, you've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. And uh, unfortunately, in 2005, Dan passed away. He succumbed to mental illness. I dedicated the book to him. My wife was ecstatic because she loved Dan, as did my kids, as did everybody in the company. Uh, and uh, and 100% of the original version of the book, I, I self-published it and Amazon were kind enough to distribute it at no cost. So 100% of, of, of the book sales went to Black Dog Institute. And I'm really proud to say over $100,000 has been donated. And uh, the new book, which is available now on Amazon, is... Um, hundred percent is I have a publisher now, and a hundred percent of my royalties will still go to Black Dog. Incredible. So you talk about your three constituents, uh, the in the book: staff, customers, and business partners. I'd love to delve a little deeper there. Can you yep. break that down? Yep. So I actually talk about four. Actually, the fourth one is shareholders, but I just want to say that. Uh, and, and, and sorry to correct you, but because I always say that if you genuinely take care of your customers, staff, and business partners, I really believe you're going to take care of your shareholders. And I always, if I do it on that PowerPoint presentation, I always have shareholders in a different color for that exact reason. But I always say it would really be easy to genuinely take care of your customers, staff, and business partners if you didn't have to worry about this juggling ball on the other hand called cash flow and profitability. You know, if you went and said to your staff, you know, this is a pretty stressful industry. Normal, you know, we normally have uh, four, four weeks of annual leave, but you can take eight weeks annual leave. And a market-related salary for your role is $100,000. We're going to pay you $150,000. You'd be an amazing company to work for for about six months, and I'd get my CV up to date because you're probably going to be out of it out of a job, or if you went to your customers and said the normal price for this product or services is, is, is 100, we're going to sell it to you for 50, you'd be a great supplier for a very short period of time. So management's job is to say, how do we still deliver exceptional customer and staff satisfaction and make a buck at the same time? And, uh, and that's the challenge with, with management. You know, if it was yeah, you know, it's not, it's, it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of founders today are, you know, whether you work at a Facebook or a Twitter or a, um, a Disney are going to have to say, how do we make sure that we can still, or a Peloton, that we can grow our revenues, but we have to be profitable at the same time. And it's the same with, you know, startups today are going to have to say, there may be a period of time like Amazon or Google or Facebook that, you know, for, for a long period of time didn't generate uh, profits, but there was always a path to profitability, and there has to be a path to profitability because no company has ever survived in history that hasn't eventually made a buck. Hmm. So, you said that a big thing that's really important to you is culture and people. Talk to me around how you hire outstanding people. I am the dumbest guy at the table, but I did have one skill, and I feel I was a really good judge of character. I could meet. I could meet someone and very, very quickly feel if they were going to have the right attitude to join our organization. And uh, so I think, yeah, I know lots of organizations may put people through psychometric tests and do all kinds of testing and process. And I could meet someone and, and you know, like Nathan, who was the first person I hired, um, you know, the, the, my brother was Dan I knew, and uh, unfortunately, as I say, he left. And my brother came, I knew my brother. The fourth person was a guy, Darren Lonstein, also a technical guy. I, I was really lucky that I didn't have their CVs. I hired people based on, on yeah, for me, what worked was my gut feel. And I don't think, I don't want to say it works for everybody, but I think today what's happening in, I think people are becoming too, almost too politically correct that, that yeah, they'll put people, they'll meet someone who they think is the right person and then say, you now need to meet this person, this person. And by the time they've, they've gone through the interview process and met 20 people, that person may have taken another role. And sometimes when, when you know it's right, you've just got to 
yeah, you've just got to make those decisions quickly in, a, in, in an organization, especially when it's unbelievably hard to attract uh, talent. So I, I would say, as I say, for me, especially I'd say the first 50 to 100 people, most of those people I may not have ever seen their CV. They were, they were either referred by people who had joined the company. They were people that I met. And for, I think yeah, my, my marketing manager was a lady I hired, I, I sponsored her from New Zealand. But um, I might get in trouble now, but it was a long time ago. But I didn't actually have a role for her. Somebody asked me if I'd do a favor and would I, would I, be, uh, would I be willing to hire this, this person. She's living in New Zealand. She's really not happy there. I said, look, as long as there's no financial obligation, of course, I'll, I'll do it, which I did. And then Merle called me and uh, said, look, I don't know if I'm a bar of soap. I just can't thank you enough. She sounded unbelievable on the telephone. And I said, um, what do you know about marketing? Merle said, no, not much. I said, I think I've got a job for you. And she became my marketing manager and I'd say my right-hand person for about 12 of those 14 years and stayed on in the company as a you know, one of the best people that I've ever, ever hired. And as I say, that was over a telephone conversation that I could just hear she had an amazing attitude and and I proved it was proved right. You know, the, the person who took over me was a young guy by the name of Steve Nola. He was a customer of mine. He worked for Telstra. And Steve treated me so well as a supplier. I thought, well, if Steve treats me so well as a supplier, and they'll do the same with, with staff and with business partners and Steve ran a Melbourne office for, I think Steve would have joined in 1989 or 1990 and left, left the company. He became the CEO of Comtech or then Dimension Data after me. And I think Steve resigned in 2020 or 2021. So I think he was there for about 31 years and I hired him on my guts. So I think sometimes when you know it's right, you, you've just got to, you, you've just got to, pull the trigger and go with your gut. And that's, as I said, it's worked really, really well for me. Uh, I know lots of other organizations have lots of process and uh, I don't want to say I'm right and they're wrong. I think uh, I just, I think I've been right. I've been wrong as many times as people who've gone through all the, all the, the different testing, you know, just worked for me. Yeah. That's a, a really different experience. So we talk about experience. It sounds like a lot of these people in the early days that you hired, they, they didn't have that much experience, but they were able to go the journey. How come? I, I, I still say it today is that I, I, I would hire for, you know, we hire for attitude and train for skills. You know, it's, uh, yeah, and especially today in a fast-changing world, no one can have all the skills to deal. Yeah, as I say, if you're going to take what's happened in our environment today, no matter what kind of a leader you were, if you were leading a massive company like a CBA or a small startup, nobody had any experience, you know, dealing in a pandemic, you know, understanding, you know, what, what could the benefits be to your organization or what were the consequences, you know, if you were, if you were in uh, e-commerce, it was a massive boost. And if you were in travel, it was a massive, yeah, it was, it was catastrophic. So, you know, I think, I think you want to hire people who you know, um, are going to have the right attitude, who know, you know, that when, uh, but obviously have the ability to learn, you know, and I think that's, uh, that's, that served me well. And, uh, and by the way, and what I do today is, uh, you know, we, we, I, I run, a, I'm a partner in a, in a venture capital fund, OIF uh, VC, and we back early stage founders. And what are you doing there? You can't back that founder on, on the numbers. The numbers aren't there yet. You're actually backing that founder on a bit of a gut feel, a gut feel uh, decision on do I believe this founder is going to execute on the business plan that they presented. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. 
These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. I want to talk about backing founders, what you look for, but before... Talk to me about identifying the right business partners. If I take my business, it was actually really easy. And uh, so I was Australia's 2% of the global market. You know, the US is about, in technology, is about 50% of the global market. So for me, identifying the right business partner was quite easy. We'd look at a pie chart and it would say, yeah, the product that really, really put me on the map when I really knew I had a business was a company called Novell. It was the network operating system, you know, the absolute hottest company in the world at the time. And uh, Novell had 70% market share and there were about, honestly, about 30 companies that then shared the remaining 30%, you know, 1% each. You know, one may have had one and a half and another a half a percent. So, you know, I remember... Uh, I remember saying to my wife, I said, I'm sitting on this gold mine. I just don't have the tools to, to she said, what, what is the gold mine? I said, it's Novell. So if you at the time said to me, would you rather have $5 million to build a network and communications business? Or would you rather have no money and have the Novell distribution agreement? I would have taken, which I did, the Novell distribution. I didn't have the $5 million opportunity anyway, but it, the, I, I knew and I was absolutely laser focused on saying, if I'm going to build a long-term sustainable business, it has to be Novell. Because what happens in the US generally happens here. You know, you're wearing an Apple iWatch because probably 70% of the market that wears smart watches or wearables or whatever are using. It's not because at, at, at the demand, you know, Australia has similar market share to what, we, what, what there is in the US. So if you were running Microsoft in Australia, yeah, as as a recruitment company once said to me, because I often worried if I was the the wrong guy to be running the company, because you sort of think, just oh, I didn't know I could ever. It was the first shot of running a company that I ever had, and sometimes you think oh, I shouldn't be running a company with a hundred people or five hundred people. And uh, I remember Microsoft were looking for a new CEO, and I phoned the recruitment company and I said, "It's going to be hard to replace Daniel." It was Daniel Petrie. Um, who was the founder of Airtree, uh, who then moved to the States to work actually with Bill Gates and Microsoft Exchange. So it's going to be hard to replace um, Daniel. And he said, he said, look, without any disrespect, he said you could put a monkey in at Microsoft and it would still grow. And he was right because Microsoft had such momentum, as does Apple today, as does Google, etc. But I said the difference between Daniel and a monkey was that an average person, if Microsoft's market share in the US was, you know, at the time, 70%, an average person would get 70, a monkey would get 65, but Daniel managed to get 75, always outdo what. So, so when we selected our business partners, we only wanted to work with the market leaders. And when Novell died, they eventually got killed by Microsoft. We became Microsoft's best best partner because if we didn't switch business partners, we would have gone off the cliff the same way Novell did and we didn't need to. So what does it mean to be the dumbest guy at the table? It's, it's recognising that that hiring people that are so much smarter than you uh, is, uh, is, is nothing to be embarrassed about. If you have confidence in, in what you're good at, that, that I just know that I'm able to add value in a in a small part of of what's a you know a big organization and uh i i yeah it was not it was it was never an issue for me it was it was i'm so lucky to be working with people who are so much smarter than me mm. and it sounds like one of the things that you looked for with the people that you worked with was character over experience yep. what key character values or traits that were you looking for and do you look for? So, by the way, if you could get character with experience, you'd take that any day of the week. Both, are, both would, be, are, are, would be the best. But I think what, what 
we would always look for is for a team player, someone who's who's absolutely going to yeah know that it's it's respect for other people and it's respect for other roles in the organization. Not thinking because I'm the number one salesperson in this company, I'm more important than, than someone who answers the phone in reception or someone who packs a box in a warehouse or someone adds, we respect everybody in the team. A team plus somebody who's willing to share their knowledge across the organization. It's, um, it's making sure that a person is going to have the right attitude, that it's no use hiring someone who's got a PhD, uh, a PhD in, uh, you know, I was just saying, I was just saying to Emma, I mean, I hired so many um, tech guys who were self-taught. I wouldn't have swapped them for PhDs in networking because not only did they have the attitude, but they had the ability as well. You know, we used to be responsible for running the networks of Woolworths for at Telstra. You know, if, if the network went down, um, we literally, you know, Woolworths would not have had a store network. So, you know, what, what, what would happen if I had this PhD networking who, you know, at five o'clock, I'm like, sorry, mate, I knock off at five. So you want to make sure, you know, likewise, there's no use having, like, someone working through the night but not knowing what the, what the hell they're doing. So it was, did they have the attitude and ability? And, and importantly, um, were they adding value? Would they add value to the organization? And it, it's, yeah, adding value to an organization is not, you know, how many hours you work in a day. It's not how long you've been with the organization. It's your contribution that counts. And, uh, you know, so as I said, we had to switch our main product. The product that put me on the map was a product called Novell. And when Novell died, we became Microsoft's best partner. If there was a technical guy, the best Novell guy, who wasn't willing to re-engineer their skills to become a Microsoft engineer, they may have added value for the first seven or eight years of our organization, but they then, they then uh, lost their ability to add value to our customers. So it's definitely being a team player, it's, it's adding value and it's, and it's uh, yeah, it's um, and meeting objectives. You have to meet your objectives and share the values of the organization. How do you build an incredible company culture? So I think it always starts at the top. And, uh, and uh, the most important thing is that your, your actions have to match your words. That, you know, my biggest fear in running a company was, you know, you said it earlier, you said, yeah, you, you, you said you take care of your customers, your staff, and your business partners. It's easy to say that. You know, I've never seen any organization that says we couldn't give a damn about customer service or, you know, or our number one asset is furniture and fittings, number two is motor vehicles, number three is, com- you know, is computer equipment, number four are our people. Everybody says our number one asset is our people. My biggest fear was standing up in front of our company and saying, those three things, and people saying, what a load of crap. They don't give a damn about customer service. They don't care about our staff over here. And I, I, I used to think every single day, what more can we be doing for our team? What more can we be doing for our customers? And uh, yeah, I, I told you why I left my company, uh, the, the first company or the first job that I had in Australia. And uh, I made up my mind that if I ever hired a person, that I was going to make sure that they loved coming to work every day, that, that if they had valuable ideas to, to contribute to the company, I always say, yeah, surrounding yourself, being the dumbest guy at the table, I honestly say 99% of the great ideas came from people other than me. And, and finally, you have to pay market-related salaries. And all three are important. You know, it's no use paying people a bucket load of money to do something that they hate. They may stick around as long as they need the money, yeah, it's no use people saying, I love coming to work every day, but I can't pay my bills. So, yeah, once again, good management is making sure you find the balance between all three things. And really, I think really with culture, what's critical is, and I think a lot of companies are going to find out now, it's not saying we, we do yoga every Thursday at, at lunchtime or we've got an open, yeah, an, an, a, an open fridge or we do, yeah, those are value adds in my opinion, Yeah. What really counts is respect for the person, respect for the role, and as I say, I can't emphasize enough, the, the quickest way to lose 
any credibility in an organization is when your is when your actions don't match your words. You know, you lose you, you lose all your integrity. You know, and I think it's really important that as you grow, you have to make sure that that the management team that you you, you hire understands those basic those basic things. So that as I said, there's you know, not everybody's created the same. Yeah, you know, I always say I mentioned Steve Nola. Yeah, Steve ran our office in Melbourne. Alan Bradshaw ran the office in Perth. As long as our customers love doing business with us, as long as our staff love coming to work every day, the way Steve ran Melbourne and the way Alan ran uh, Perth was up to them. And that's uh, so you have to encourage individuality, but you have to have core values and unbreakable, rigid um, uh, values in an organization and live and die by them. Let's talk about the tough times. So to grow a company like you did, first company as well at that speed, I'm sure you've made a ton of mistakes and there were some really tough decisions that you had to make. Um, can you tell us some of the lessons that you've learned throughout your career about some of these tough decisions that you've had to make? Yep. So so there's, yeah, there's little bad decisions that you make, the wrong hire, the wrong product, the wrong... And there's catastrophic ones that can put you out of business. And I'm going to, I'm going to start off by saying I'll never forget we, we had our first bad debt and I was devastated. It, it was a company actually based in Melbourne, a company called High Soft, who was actually my biggest customer. And uh, we had a bad debt of about $70,000. And uh, I must say my eldest brother, Stephen, who eventually took over the finance side, had scaled them back their credit back from about a million dollars down to 70,000. I remember coming for a meeting in Melbourne, sitting in reception, and uh, the, the guy who ran the company, this guy Howard Mary, I think since passed away, I'll never forget, he said, here's the guys who don't want to do business with us. And uh, yeah, under my breath, I said, we do, we just want to get paid for it. But we lost $70,000. I phoned my dad, I said, dad, I'm so unhappy, I'm so upset, you've just lost $70,000. And my dad said, how much business did they do with you over the years? Yeah, I said, oh, probably about $3 million. And they said, what was the profit margin you made on that? Said, probably about 30%. So I said, so you made $900,000 and you've lost $70,000. But what he said next is my advice for any founder today. Is my dad said to me in true South African way, I said, and my boy, he said, if you chop wood, you get splinters. So... I think if you're going to run a business, you're going to have a few, you're going to chop wood, you're going to get some splinters. And I think the key thing is when you do make a mistake is you have to recognize it and you've got to somehow, um, you've, you've got to somehow say, made a mistake, the sooner you, you, the sooner you, you acknowledge the mistake and move forward, the better. Sometimes people don't want to move forward quick enough. We made one really, really bad mistake that could have been a catastrophic mistake. So, you know, once again, probably unfortunately only because of my age, some of the companies I'm talking about you wouldn't have heard of, but we had the dream team at the time. Um, um, we sold Novell, as I said, which was market-leading network operating system. There was a product called Synoptics who invented Ethernet over unshielded twisted pair set. So when you see how you cable up in your computer to, uh, you don't even use the cables anymore, you use Wi-Fi most of the time, and we had Cisco as a, as a wide area networking product. It was the dream team. All three companies, when you say, how did we choose our business partners, were industry standard market leading companies with about 70% market share. One day I get a call from our, our supplier at Synoptics, a guy Steve Wood, also Melbourne based. Steve said to me, Dave, great news, we've just merged with Wellfleet. Wellfleet was, was Cisco's biggest competitor. And I felt the blood drained from my body because I could just, I knew we were going to have to make a decision of, do we go with this merged company or, and lose our partnership with Cisco or do we go with Cisco and lose the partnership with Bay Networks, which became Synoptics and Wealthy became Bay Networks. And, uh, yeah, businesses, yeah, when you make mistakes that are in your control, it's your fault. When things happen that are out of your control, it's really tough. So, you know, as I said, we spoke about the pandemic. You know, if you were running a travel business and 
it, it was really a tough challenge to deal with, but it was out of, out of your control. And this was out of our control. And for a number of reasons, we decided to go with the merch company. It was a really, really bad decision. It was a shocking decision. The day we made the decision, I said to my brother, I said, we've stuffed up. And uh, luckily, 18 months later, the CEO of Cisco came to see me. And by the way, the business was still going well. Um, I think at the time he came to see me as a guy, John Chambers, probably the best tech sales sales person I've ever met in the industry still to this day. Um, I think we were doing about $165 million and making about $14 million of profit. So when you looked on paper, it looked like we had, we, you know, we had a great business. But what I saw was Novell and Bain Networks are laying off staff while Microsoft and Cisco were just announcing record quarter after record quarter. And I realized if we didn't do something, we would, we would have serious problems. And, and the CEO of Cisco came to see me 18 months later and said, when you made your decision, it was a really good decision. The market, I went, John, geez, it was a like, he was just being, as I say, he was a great sales guy. He said, the market's changed. He said, I'm here to extend the olive branch. And, uh, and thank God he did because I probably wouldn't be sitting in this, in this studio today if we hadn't re-signed our relationship with, um, with Cisco because at the end when we sold the company, I think Cisco was about more than 50% of our revenue mm. and, uh, and that's really what helped us achieve the, the outcome that we actually did. It was actually a really good lesson for me because – you know, when you think about Cisco at the time, it was probably about a $10 billion a year company, maybe even bigger. And, uh, and the CEO still took the time to come and see me. And you know, he thought the best, in the best interest of Cisco for their, their business in Australia, it would be great to have a partnership with Comtech. I often wonder if I had a, a customer in Tasmania spent $10,000 a year with me in Tasmania, it pissed me off. Would I, would I go and spend an hour and a half and probably at that stage I probably would not have, but it was a great lesson for me that, yeah, if something feels right, and obviously for, for Cisco at the time, the best thing was to have a partnership with Comtech, and I can tell you, for me, it saved, it saved our business. It would have been a catastrophic mistake had we not re-signed. Mm. I could talk to you all day, Dave. Uh, we have to work towards wrapping up. We have to talk about investing. You know, uh, you have your venture fund. Uh Red flags, what are the red flags you look for when investing in a startup? So, look, the, the first thing we look at is we back founders. So if I look at our fund, we, we don't have a thematic. We don't say we just invest in fintech or edtech or martech. We, we are founder-led. And, uh, and you know, what we look at is, 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 first of all, the founder, and second of all is, is what, what's the founder working on and uh, you know, we, always, we look at our, our, our business model today and we say we have two customers. We have the founder on the one, on the one hand and the other, on the other hand, we have our investors who entrust us with their funds and we have an obligation to, to somehow generate the best returns for, for our investors. So we, we, but when we look at a founder, yeah, if it doesn't feel right, I can tell you my biggest mistake was backing a founder that I knew wasn't the right person I got talked into it my own mistake I, I met a founder um, uh, and I, I said to the guy who introduced me I said Ryan I just don't trust the guy and he said Dave you've got it all wrong I was at school with him in Zimbabwe he's a great guy turned out I should have gone on my gut because it was the biggest mistake that I've made in venture so once we ascertain that it's the founder that we want to work with I mean the things that you're looking for is is does the founder have energy because being a founder requires a huge amount of energy. You know, we've just been chatting about you know, the last few years and the amount of energy that you would have needed to, you know, yeah, you need energy anyway, but do, you know, working through a pandemic, then the, the, the challenge with, with attracting, engaging and retaining staff, now trying to raise capital in a market that's, that's, that's turned unbelievably quickly, you know, didn't, didn't happen gradually. It was like literally went off a cliff. So you, you, you have to have energy. But I think what's absolutely critical is do you believe that founder is going to have the ability to energize? Energize everybody because 
you're going to have to have a founder who's going to be able to say, this is why you should leave your amazing job at CBA or at Google or at Amazon or at at, 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 at Atlassian and come and join me um, in this tiny little workspace or whatever I'm working. This is my dream. Will that founder be able to energize a customer to say the easy decision is to go with, with um, the market leader, the right decision is to go with this little startup. You, know, you should commit your, you know, we have a cybersecurity companies we, you know, where we compete with massive US companies and uh, you know, everybody knows how important cyber is. So yeah, someone, if you were um, the, the, the CISO at Optus and you said, we use the best industry standard market leading products. We still got hacked. You know, you'd probably still be in trouble, but but not as bad as you what? You went with this little company based in uh, Newcastle, you know, with the founders from Newcastle. So it, you know, founders have to be able to energize customers, staff, and business partners. You also have to have the edge to make that those tough yes and no decisions. Should I scrap a non-performing product? Should I get rid of my best salesperson? because they don't share the values of the organization. Yeah, as I said, in all or nothing, the arsenal. But, and, and finally, when you look at that founder, that they all give you amazing business plans that are going to lose, a bit of, lose quite a lot of money in year one. Year two, I'm going to get to break even. And by year three, I'm going to be printing money. Okay, Never happens that way, but that's what they all look like on, a, on, on those original pictures. But do you believe that the founder is going to have the ability to execute on the business plan that they presented you with? So it's all four things. It's, it's energy, the ability to energize people, the, the ability to make those, the edge to have those, make those tough yes and no decisions. And finally, will they be able to execute on what, on what they provided? And tell me, what's been your most successful portfolio company? So within our portfolio, I'd say we have a company called InstaCluster, awesome, uh, uh, awesome uh, founders out of a, um, the university in Canberra, ANU, and uh, absolutely loved the founders when we met them. And uh, I think we saw what a lot of people didn't see. Um, I know that we try to help them raise money from other VCs and that uh, they were seen as more professional services company. So we put in three and a half million dollars in our in our first fund, which was a thirty-seven million dollar fund, and uh, in that one investment we returned seventy million dollars. So if um, if you put a dollar into our first fund just on that Insta cluster outcome, you would have got back two, and uh, so that that's been an amazing amazing financial investment. But I think what's critical to us is is that. We still have an amazing relationship with the founders, even though they owe us nothing and we owe them nothing. I know that um, one of the founders was in Sydney the other day. They said, I'll be in Sydney on Friday. Can we go for lunch? So we still, yeah, we, we, we still have, you know, for the reason, as I said, we want to work with people that we want to work with. And my advice to any founder is make sure, you know, as Ian Chappell said in my book, don't take the bat that will pay the most. Pay, play with the bat that's going to get you the most runs. And, and it's the same. We believe work with, you know, we, we want to work with people we want to work with, and it should work on the other side as well, that a founder should want to make sure that the, that the, the company or the VC fund they're going to work with is genuinely interested in helping them succeed. Awesome. All right, we're going to move the hot seat round. I don't want to take any more time. So... What's the worst mistake a founder can make? Look, there's there's lots. I mean, timing is a yeah. It's if you yeah. I'd, I'd go and say if Nick Molnar, for example, is yeah, is arguably been the best founder in the last yeah the last ten years. If he decided to start a buy now pay later today, he would not succeed. The same guy, same motivation, same charisma, same everything. Yeah, the 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 boat sailed. So just make sure that your timing's right. But I think we're a lot of, and I think, and I'll, and I'll actually say that one of the biggest mistakes a founder can make is, is losing focus. It's, uh, it's, I always say you have to be as focused as a one-eyed dog in a meat factory. And I think Afterpay is absolutely evidence of, you know, if you compare how Afterpay executed 
and uh, and then how Zip executed. And by the way, I love both founders. We we backed Larry Diamond before I funded Zip, but but all is what Afterpay did for the first seven years was pay in four equal installments. And I'm sure, yeah, the interface looked better. I'm sure that the integrations became easier to point of sale systems. I'm sure the number of leads they were able to give to, to their customers grew. But the focus of that organization was just exceptional. I think sometimes founders try and do too many things. And yeah, you go and look at Apple. When Steve Jobs came back to Apple, I think he called, he, yeah, he, most he, of the pipeline. He, 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 he had four products and then developed the iPod which you know, became the, the, you know, the tail that wagged the dog and, and the rest is history. So I would just say to any founder, stay the course and, uh, and, and yeah, you, you know, your product has to get better and improve, but, but don't get distracted by doing too many, trying to do everything. Yeah, if you go and take Apple, they first did the iPod, which then became the iPhone and then the iPad and then the iPad. They didn't do all together. When, when the iPod was printing money, they said, where else can we be investing? When the iPhone was printing money, let's, let's give the iPad a go. What's the best choice a founder can make? They choose OIFVC as their business partner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think the best choice a founder can make is choosing the right co-founder. It's making sure that you align yourself with, with yeah, I was just with one of our founders today, and that, that yeah, been struggling a bit to raise capital and uh, and I said the you know, the best thing is the two of you have got each other because yeah I often found even even in, in, in when I ran my own business was yeah on the days that I was feeling down and, and there are it would be very normal for a founder to feel down yeah my brother was gen, was generally feeling up and the days that he was down I was feeling up and it was a good yeah, mate, don't worry, we'll work through this. I think just surrounding yourself with the right people and, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that would be my best advice. What industry excites you the most right now? We, we hope that founders take us to, to areas that we may not have thought of investing in. So I don't want to sound naive, but as I said, in our fund today, at the one extreme we have uh, cybersecurity companies and and company that literally provides the most sophisticated navigation or position equipment in the world. Red Bull use their technology for, for tracking uh, the, aer- you know, the, 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 the aerobotic flights and whatever. And the other extreme, we have two founders who are digitally transforming the funeral industry and everything in between. So if you had said to me, do I think we would invest in the funeral industry? The answer would have probably been no. The founders were phenomenal, and uh, and then we have everything in between. So I, I have no doubt that we'll be involved in in if yeah if I had to do an interview with you in, in a few years' time, I'd be unbelievably surprised if we didn't have something in in the clean energy space, yeah, which is a massive growth area. Um, yeah, we just haven't met the founders, the right founders to to deploy capital in that area yet. What's something you've learnt today? That it looks like you hire for attitude as well, because I was lucky enough to spend a little bit of time <laughs> with Emma, and I think you made a good decision bringing her on board. So, so yeah, now I've just noticed that the people in your in your, um, I went to the bathroom and I forget the guy's name, but I can just see people. Looks like people love coming to work every day. Oh, thank you. Last question. Is that true, guys? <laughs> <laughs> Last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? It would probably be Elon Musk because I think he's out of, he's not the CEO that I would aspire to be. The CEO that I would aspire to be would probably be a Satya Nadella or a Bob Iger from Disney because I think I'm more of an empathetic leader than, uh, um, um, yeah, I think I'm an empathetic leader. I think that out of, and in our lifetime, we've seen most incredible founders, you know, from Steve Jobs to Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I think Elon Musk is, is what he's done. Yeah, and the way he does it, I, uh, yeah, I talk about focus. You know, one of the things we absolutely obsessed about when we back founders is that this is literally 120% of what they do. And how someone is able to do what he's done as effectively as, as, as how he's managed to be the CEO of Tesla, of SpaceX, now of Twitter, yeah, of uh, the boring company um, is, is, is amazing. And uh, you know, I read his book many, many years ago 
And you know, before I read the book, this guy's going to populate Mars, and you think the guy's a nut. And then you read the book and you say, I reckon he's going to populate Mars. So, yeah, that would probably be him. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to just share all of your incredible experiences and wisdom. Congratulations on all your success thus far. And uh, if uh, anybody wants to find out more about yourself and the book and OIF Ventures, where do people go? Uh, so the book's available in, uh, on Amazon and uh, Booktopia, and I know I saw it at the airport. It's weird when you're walking through the airport and you see uh, your own book there. And uh, the best place is probably on, on oifvc.com is uh, where you can find out more about our fund and myself. And obviously I'm on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. David, thank you so much. Thanks so much for the time. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.